Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. The show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Welcome back to the show. Today's episode I actually recorded before October 7th, and because of that, I felt like I had to do a follow-up something with Darcy, with Davida Nicole. So first, you'll hear the original episode and how long it took to record that, how we had to stop one minute in after having rescheduled and canceled several times, and then we finally got it in. And the same thing happened second time around. Last week when we were planning to record this episode, it took a couple of reschedules and cancellations, but we got it in. So thanks for bearing with us, and I hope you are able to follow along with this format. This is a Jewish Coffee House podcast, so if you enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy Orthodox Conundrum, Chokmat Nashim, and Intimate Judaism. If you like the show, please make sure you are following it. Please tell other people who might appreciate these episodes, the show about us. And while you're in the app, please leave me a review, hopefully a five-star one. This is how you help this podcast show up as a suggestion for other people who are looking for a new podcast. And here we go, attempt number two. Welcome, Darcy. Nice to see you. How's everything? Good. How are you since last time we spoke? Uh, much better. <laughs> this is what we heard last time we tried to record one minute into our interview. Oh, excuse me one second. There's an alarm. of terrorist infiltration. Not a joke. There's an alarm right now. Let me just like, let me see what's going on with this and hold tight. Oh my gosh, there's really a, there's an infiltrator in our neighborhood right now. Can you tell us in a few short moments of what happened and how it resolved? Yeah, there was basically a couple of cars that came into my issue of that were suspicious. And so it took them about an hour to root them out and check them out and get them out. So I guess one of them left on its own and the other one checked out to be okay. But I don't I don't know if that's the total story. That's just like the story we got. Who knows what the whole story was? So they don't tend to tell us all those details are here to hear all the details about your story. And your story back to Judaism, your story uh, back to your family. So let's get started. Tell us about yourself. Sounds good. I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut. And to be very, very clear, I always knew I'm Jewish, right? So I grew up in a very Jewish identity, pretty much reform. So my great grandparents were actually Orthodox and my grandparents started out Orthodox and my mother was actually born Orthodox. But, you know, in the 60s, things changed. And so people became reform. It was like a new thing to do. So the timing was wonderful. So pretty much everybody in my town, except for like a small percentage, were pretty much reform or conservative. There was like two choices. And a few people were Orthodox, like modern Orthodox or a few, very few Chabad in my neighborhood or ultra Orthodox. So it was kind of like a mixed upbringing that way. 
Plus, my mom had grown up in the 60s and 70s, and she rebelled because she grew up reformed. And I say rebelled like in the most respectful way, but she married outside. So my my mom married somebody who wasn't Jewish. And then when I was a baby, they got divorced. And then she married somebody else who wasn't Jewish. So I actually grew up in a mixed faith upbringing. But my mom, she always was like yearning for Israel and yearning, 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 yearning. And I think if my mom had found Hasidus, like she wouldn't have gotten so mixed up in a lot of different things that she did. Which were what? So my mom got mixed up with Christianity, right? So, but we were always Jewish at the same time. So she actually like got into like Messianic Judaism because she didn't know anything about anything growing up reform. So she thought she was like on the right path when all she's looking for really is Hasidus, right? But it got me mixed up because I was little. So I ended up going not in that direction, but I actually spent a lot of time in, you know, obviously going to Rosh Hashanah, going to Yom Kippur, having Pesach, having all of the Chagim, like we did everything. But I was also like going to church at the same time, right? In the black church predominantly, which is interesting because as I tell you how I learned more about orthodoxy, how it kind of, that actually fast-tracked me <laughs> because conceptually, so many things that were happening in that environment were like, Hasidus, but under the wrong words, like under the wrong, the, the great concepts, but the wrong filter. So by the time I, and I'll tell you how I got into like Orthodox circles, but by the time I got into Orthodox circles and at the right tables to help Karov me, I actually knew so much already. Like very high, like concepts that like most Balchuvas take years and years and years and years to learn. I was like, oh, wait, wait, isn't that wait, is that this? And they're like, yeah, how do you know? So I actually just needed like a lexicon shift. And so by the time I came to me becoming observant, and I'll, I'll get into the detail when you ask questions about it, but this is like the overview. It, it, it took me like some time to like get through the lexicon shift. But like once I did, I really was able to like make that transition pretty easily. So it was pretty spectacular. And in the, in the, all of that time, I actually ended up being an advocate. So I'd be, I'd be in churches and people, the pastors would say things about the Hebrews and the holidays and different things. I'm like, resident Jew here. Here's actually what that is, right? Like all my life growing up, I'm like, well, you see, no, that's no, that's, there's a difference between a menorah and a Hanukkah. So I ended up like doing internal kiruv and like helping change people's opinions about Jewish things and also helping inside of communities that didn't understand anything about Jewish people or had misconceptions. I'm like, no, see, my grandfather actually was like part of the Freedom Rides and he was one of the people who was helping during that time. And that's not Jewish role in the 60s, the civil rights movement. Our role was this. Yeah, so there's always been this interesting parallel. Okay, it was the same. You just had different language or a different filter. Can you give us some examples of what you're saying? For all those who do not know what Messianic Judaism is. Yeah, no, no, I'm happy to. So, for example, the term hisbodadut, I didn't know what that was until someone told me what hisbodadut is. I'm like, oh, that's just like personal prayer. That's like outpour. They would call it outpouring. Like you go into your private space. Right. The Christians would call it a prayer closet. That's what they actually called it. 
It's like going to the prayer closet, which means just you and God in your own words. So like they had like the concepts they learned from Jews, but I didn't know what I, any different, right? I was like, I thought because of my mom and like all the things that she got mixed up in that I was like on the right track. But my mom, interestingly enough, was like, don't you ever forget you're a Jew. You're having a chuppah when you get married. You're not, you're a Jew, 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 you're a Jew. Like, so no matter what was going on, and if we were ever in a space where, where we felt disrespected as Jews, we left the space. So it was an interesting way to grow up. It means I can have really tough conversations that a lot of people don't want to have, right? So it's pretty cool. Like what? The idea of faith versus Amuna. Right? I didn't know what Amuna was. I didn't know that the Psalms were called Tehillim, like all of these different kinds of things I, I understood conceptually, but I didn't know and I attached to really closely, but I didn't have the right language when I say lexicon. Okay. Literally, that's what you meant. Yeah, literally. And also, and even like also practically speaking, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the problem with having gone to church in the first place is, the, is the, the, a different issue. But given the fact that I did have that experience growing up, it actually prepared me to, when I did find my way towards orthodoxy and Hasidus, it was like a very natural shift. It was like, because it was how I lived my life. I was very devoted as a religious person. Like I pretty much came out of the gate. I was a religious person, like from birth, like before I even could talk about anything else, I was talking about God. It's like from age two. So I came into the world in that headspace already. I just didn't have the right, the right language and the right education. But what's interesting is that when my grandfather died, he is the one who shifted the family to become reform out of orthodoxy into reform. And his teshuva before he died was to leave in his will that I should have a Jewish education. And he put a certain amount of money into that. I went to Jewish day school for a year when I was seven, which actually was a huge foundation for me as well right before my mother got mixed up in Christianity. And like, again, I, I say she got mixed up in Christianity, but she never stopped being a Jew. I want to make sure that's very, very clear to anybody who's listening. She just had a mix up, but she stayed very Jewish at the same time. And my grandfather left a certain amount of money and I went to school for a year with that money, but I got thrown out of that school because my mother was reformed. And they didn't think I fit in. Plus, I had some, like, I have, I have a neurological disorder. I have a form of epilepsy. So that also didn't fit in too well at the time. There was no such thing as a learning plan back then. So I got thrown out of the school. And that school was actually where I was getting a lot of my Jewish identity, even more so than my, I was coming home with, like, Torah. And it got stopped. But when I started to discover orthodoxy, and there was cost to go to Shirim and come to Israel, which is where I met my husband. I came here. My That same money funded that like 30 years later. <laughs> it's a lot. So take us through. It's interesting you describe that transition. It reminds me of this analogy of somebody who gets out of a very serious relationship and then jumps into another very serious relationship right away, almost skipping all those beginning stages. Well, it was still lengthy because by the time, first of all, the first experience I had was being, I met with a friend because I work in music and I was working in a lot with hip hop music. And there was a, 
a Hasidic guy who was an artist who was doing some rap music and, and wanted to talk to me about it. And, and the first thing he said was, you have to come to Shabbat by so-and-so. So he is the one who brought me to different tables, right? And he himself hadn't been stopped going to the tables after a little while, and I never stopped. And so one of those people is the reason I know you, and she is Estrelea Marchette from Atara. So she is one of the first tables that I ever went to. And it took a long time for me to sift through all the years of confusion because I didn't know what was wrong and what was what I was looking for. But I was really, really, really focused on connecting with the right path. Like I wanted to, if I was going to be following Hashem, which is what I wanted my entire life, I had to learn how to do that as a Jewish person completely without any other colors in the mix, meaning other hues of thought, right? Just pure Torah. And, you know, I'd always heard about growing up, oh, there's the oral Torah. Well, what does that mean? And what does it say? And like, what is it? And how are we applying it? And my mom, I really believe my mom was kind of shortchanged because all she wanted was Hashem. All she wanted was Israel. And growing up, she kept feeling that there were secrets that were being kept from her. And this is also like an interesting thing that happened at the same time. So as I'm growing toward orthodoxy and learning Torah and learning how to apply a Jewish life and a Shomer Shabbat and Shomer Kashrus and everything else under the sun, at the same time as I'm growing in that direction, the stories and the uncovering of my ethnicity and my heritage started coming out. So it's kind of like the more I showed Hashem that I was digging and looking and, and finding, the more he let me uncover about the things that were hushed in my family. So my great-grandparents came here and on both sides of my mother's side. My dad's not Jewish, obviously. And they didn't want, they wanted to erase everything from the past. They wanted to be American. That was their goal, their dream. That was it. We shtum, we don't talk about the past. But my mom would look at the family pictures and be like, there is something that you're not telling me, mom, because to her mother, because these people do not look like they are from Russia. I'm sorry. They're, this is not, this is not. These are, who are these Arab people? And my, my ah, the, yes, the relatives, old relatives from a long time, we don't talk about it. So as I'm coming through this whole process, I uncover that my grandmother's side of the, my mother's side of the family is Persian and Bukharian and Georgian. So my grandmother is Persian, my mother's mother, and her father's side was Bukharian and Georgian, which is also Persian, Turkish, kind of mix. They went through the Ukraine, which is where it got, that's why everybody thought they're Russians, the Russians, but they're not at all. Well, so, yeah, people mix up Russians and Ukrainians. Exactly. No, but, but them specifically, right. They, they weren't, they, well, it was Russia back then. Like Ukraine was part of Russia back then, but the story isn't really, that's where, that's where they ended up, but that's not where they came from. So my grandmother's parents were born in the Ukraine. But before that, her father's family was in Kharg Island, Iran, in Bushi, which is like, what? So my grandmother comes from the family of Sasson, which is crazy. Like, I'm like, wait, what? So it's like, okay, so Hashem, like, not only do you like turn my world upside down in terms of everything I thought I knew on everything else, 
then you unlock these gates of secrets that my grandmother wouldn't talk about. And you behind that secret was like her coming from one of the most spectacular dynastic families in Jewish history. Like, are you kidding me? Right. But because so many of the members of the family were devastated financially when they got stuck on the Silk Road going from Iran to, well, for originally from Iraq to Iran, then over to the East, you know, go to India and Shanghai. Several, several members of the family got stuck in Russia and the Ukraine and all of that. It was, there wasn't Ukraine then, but it was Russia. And they got stuck and they got put into little, before the pogroms, they got put into little shtetls and whatever, whatever. And so they don't talk about it because they lost everything. So it was shame. So the shame kept everything a secret. But when you break past the shame, you say, there is no shame. We're all Jews. We all suffered. We all had a tremendous difficulty. Everyone who was Jewish, their family had something unbelievable, right? There is no shame. It's just, just like a victim of any kind of a crime. There's no shame for the victim. So we broke the shame. We unlocked the power, which is super cool. And unfortunately, it happened after both my mother and my grandmother passed away. But at the same time, it may not have been able to happen until then because they were locking the secrets. But my mom wanted to know, and I'm really convinced that if my grandmother had told her this, the truth, that she would have felt more of an identity and more close and more connected and maybe would have come to Israel and it would have changed her life a lot. But I'm here. It skipped a generation. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's really powerful because I came here and I thought I had nobody here. And it turns out I have my grandfather's first cousin made Aliyah in the 60s. So I came here alone to get married to my husband, Ruch Hashem. And I thought I was all by myself. And it turns out I have my grandfather's first cousin and all his family here that I discovered only after I moved here. So there's a lot here. Tell me why you wanted to come on and share your story here. Yeah, so I wanted, I wanted to share my story because, first of all, it is unusual. So, you know, I, I find it's really interesting that when I do share with some people that my mom got mixed up in going to church and things like that, people start to get really uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> like they're not afraid of Garim. They're not afraid of people who've converted and like, <laughs> they're like, oh, that's normal, right? That's okay. But once you start to say that your mom, who's a Jew, made a mistake, right? Because she got mixed up. It makes people nervous. So I really wanted to come and share this part of my story because, well, first of all, it's a very long process, like how how religiously attached I was. And it, pr it primed the pump for me becoming Orthodox because once I, like I already established like a life of devout like relationship with Hashem. Like it was like all I wanted was to serve God. And it was like, and the, the concepts of like Kiruv and Chesed and Tzedakah and like all of the things that I came to understand and through a different lens, albeit true. But when I came to Judaism, I saw that as a tremendous asset because it just meant, okay, I'm just going to do the same things I've been doing, but in, in a Jewish way that I should have been doing since some time I'm born because that's where Jews were made to be Jews. And it was actually the most encouraging thing to help me like make that shift did not come from a rabbi. I actually was working with, with a faculty member 
who is the he's like he's a doctor of divinity actually and he's himself a pastor and i i was talking to him about my journey and he this is a pastor who said to me well you're a jew all that's all you need to be is that's everybody else is who wants to connect to god is is wishes they could be a jew <laughs> like you don't need anything else that's who you are you're you're like already go go be it be be and it was like the most encouraging launch pad. Wait, is that true? He said everyone who wants to be connected to God wants to be a Jew? No, he didn't say they want to be a Jew. He said they wish they, they, wish they had been born that way. Mm. Now, this is, this is somebody who, from his experience, that's what he's saying. So he's saying that you, you already are what we're all aspiring to be. We can't be Jews, but we're doing everything we can to come up to like whatever level we can. But you're already there. So that's all you need to be. So it was like after a lifetime of all this other stuff, this person tells me that. And it was like almost like, wow, yeah, you're right. Makes total sense. So I'm trying to like help people not be afraid of these conversations because, you know, they understand someone who's a convert. But sometimes people don't understand someone who went through a different kind of a journey to find like they might even say, Oh, if you were a Buddhist, we understand why you came to Judaism and you went to Buddhism or whatever. Like they understand that first, but they don't understand how, how it's possible, right? Someone could get mixed up in the wrong Derek and then, and then they don't want to talk about it. So I'm, I'm here to like share the story so that people are not afraid to talk about an unusual way that a person can come back and do teshuva. It's really important that that conversation be explored because the people who weren't afraid to help me saved my life and made it possible for me to find my actual path and to get married. And Baruch Hashem, I never got married until I became an Orthodox Jew and married an Orthodox husband. Like Baruch Hashem, I never got married outside, right? Like Hashem really preserved me every single step of the way, you know? And I had incredible rabbis who, who helped me understand what potential I had in orthodoxy and Torah. And it was those tables that, that did not judge and that those tables that took the time to say, ah, you just, you just confused. So I want more people to say, okay. Which is not validating. Uh, it was, it, it was not invalidating. Because they actually, when they said you're just confused, it wasn't like, oh, you're confused and there's something wrong with you. They were like, help us understand what you know and how you see it. And let's help you reshape it and reframe it in a Jewish way. So it was, it was a tremendous amount of love and respect and not pushing me, just inviting me, just, just inviting me, inviting me, inviting me and, and keeping me welcome in the space and not being afraid. I have a few follow-up questions. Number one, how did your church respond to you leaving it for Judaism? Sounds like they were very positive and supportive or it was just that pastor? Well, so it wasn't, it wasn't actually one church. First of all, it's really important to know that because if you're, if you're going to, well, some people do go to one church and it's, it's not like Catholic. It's not like that. It's very different. And I was also actually not even going to the same places that my mom was going to, but it it was like non-denominational and, and, in the African-American community. So it wasn't, it wasn't just like one place you'd go to. It was more like just like a, a line of 
thought, right? Like a, an approach. None of my friends, I'll tell you, none of my friends who I grew up with since I've been the dawn of time were upset. They were like, oh my gosh, that totally makes sense. That's who you are. And every single one of those friends that has been like, I want to understand more. When you are visiting me, I want to make sure things are kosher. I've actually been able to have conversations between communities that are very, very painful and difficult to have and very honest and actually been able to help do a lot of reframing and help people understand what Jewish people are, what a, Jew, what a religious Jewish person is, what a Shabbos observant person is, and without creating, you know, a lot of backlash. Now, I have to say, in all fairness, that the African-American Christian experience is very different than the white evangelical experience. And I'm saying that very, very seriously, because the white evangelical experience is response to what you as you're going to, you know, where you don't believe, then that's it for you, curtains. That is not the feeling, which is why there's a divide between that, those two schools of thought. I did not grow up connecting to the experience that was the white evangelical Bible thumpers experience. I did not experience that. I grew up, I ran screaming from that. As soon as anybody said that to me, I was out the door. I grew up in spaces that focused on predominantly the Tanakh and predominantly Tehillim. Approach, you know, music and singing and Tehillim. That was like their focus. So... That also was Hashem guarding me and protecting me and putting me into a space where I could really understand what was, what was going to be. Like when I got to it, when I got to the place where I was becoming Orthodox, I was like, oh, 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 so that's the Shekhinah. Oh, that's Tehillim. Oh, that's his spot of dude. Oh, okay, okay, I got my translation. I got it. I'm good. Okay, now I get it. Oh. That's how I'm supposed to be living as a Jewish person. Over here, for these people, I can still relate to them because they're my friends and we have what to relate with, but I'm doing it in a Jewish way, whereas they don't have to. They're not Jewish, but I do have to do things in a Jewish way. So it just, it just made it so much clearer for me. But it did take time to clear out like a lot of the, you know, clear out the garage with a lot of stuff that was needed to be unpacked and things that needed to be packed and put aside. What had to be packed and put aside? Well, if you, if you're like growing up with an emotional connection from the age of 10 to a certain experience through a certain lens, it's, it's hard to let go of some of the concepts there. Because ultimately, if, if you're told the Mashiach is one thing, but you, then you're, you're coming into a Jewish experience under saying that Mashiach is not exactly what you grew up thinking or knowing or being told or whatever taught. It's a challenge to make that emotional shift. And I was terrified. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm losing my friends. I was, I was nervous. Like it was like, like you said, it's like coming out of one relationship and into another. It was not like a jump. It was a transition into truth, into truth and the Derek of a Jew. And, but I think anybody who's Balchuva has some kind of a transition, right? Whether it's a transition of, oh my gosh, I have to cover my hair, which was news for me when I got married when I was 42. So that was, that was a new experience too. 
But, oh, I can't wear sleeveless, you know, shirts anymore and shorts. Okay. Oh, I can't go out to just any restaurant with my friends. Like, so there, regardless, and that's can be emotional in the family, right? Like, oh my gosh, the rest of my family is like reform and I'm, you know, from and like, like, there's always something when you're doing teshuva that you have to transition out of and into to get into your, into your greater space. So I think, I think that I'm trying to help normalize that whatever someone's coming out of, and going into it, it doesn't really matter what the was before is. It's still going to be something that you have to grow out of and grow into your new space. Like it's, it's going to be an emotional transition, no matter what you're coming from as a Baltuva. I just think that more people understand different, it's like, okay, coming from reform to Orthodox. Okay. Coming from Buddhism to Orthodox. Oh, coming from atheism to Orthodox. Like they understand those transitions, I think, a little more easily because maybe they're more common. Oh, okay, you're a, you're a Gare or a Garris. Okay, we understand that. But it's not so common to have someone who just because a couple of generations hit a, hit a road bump, you know, and it was rebellion. My grandfather came home one day in the 60s and threw Literally, my, 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 they were, they were married Orthodox, my grandparents, and my mother was born Orthodox. I'm just saying that again. My grandfather got into a fight with his mother, found out whatever. I don't know what he found out. Came home with a pound of bacon and threw it on the kitchen table and said, cook it, cook it, Ella. And that was the end of them being Orthodox. And it was that severe. So rebellion put us through this tremendous, this tremendous shakeup. And that rebellion made my mother lose her footing. She didn't know who she was anymore. And that's when she got thrown off track for her as a Jew. And that almost threw me off track. And also there was a lot of like personal trial that went on in that space. There was a lot of, there was like my mom married a, my father's a wonderful person, my actual father, my stepfather, not so much. And that got, was really difficult. My mother had lupus, which was, which, you know, I'm convinced like, you know, it was like a, a spiritual thing she had to go through, but she was always craving Israel and craving the truth and craving. She really wanted Mashiach. Like my mom, I, I'm serious. Like if my mom had found Breslov or Chabad, that would have been a totally different scene for her. Talk to me about some of that exclusion or misunderstanding. How often does it come up? your background in conversation? And is it very uncomfortable? Do you feel very judged and misunderstood? I don't feel that way, except when and there's only a few people who are willing to like take the conversation deep. I'm very happy that the ones who have have been like anchors of support for me. Most of the time, what I do encounter in a conversation is, oh, okay. And then they, they kind of hit a ceiling of how comfortable they are, like getting into the details. They don't because I, I don't, I don't disrespect what they're saying it because I think they are also trying to protect their kadusha and they don't want to bring in some other conversation about some other pathway that a non-Jewish person is following or anything like that. I get that they don't want to do that, but sometimes it would be really great to like help, you know, help explain it because I'm, I can't be the only person like me especially with America with so much intermarriage, like I can just imagine like in another generation, like a bunch of these kids who was, whose moms married outside, like these kids are Jews. 
but they're coming, they're growing up with trees in the house, you know, they're growing up with both faiths and their background, or maybe it's not even Jewish. Maybe there's like a, a Jewish mother and a Muslim guy or something, you know, just, we don't know. And so I just want to like help people understand, like, don't. What should the follow-up question be if you tell me that this is your background, your family background? I, I yeah, can't so I think- imagine asking any different follow-up questions if someone tells me they're a gear or their detour was in Buddhism. I'm not sure which one you're referring to. Meaning what, what's actually polite to ask and what's, I don't know if it's disinterest, but it's, you know, absolute ignorance. And where, where does this conversation go? Right. No, I think, I think it's actually really great what you just said, that you said that it's not, it's not necessarily someone being dismissive. It's, it could be not knowing what to say, or it could be afraid to say the next thing. So I think, I think it would be cool if you, if someone opens the conversation, this is one thing that I, I really found to be fascinating is that when I first went to a couple of people's homes, including, including the Marchette home, who they're like the dearest friends in the world to me. And they didn't, they didn't stop at, Oh, well, you're just, you're confused or you're mixed up. They're like, okay, let's, so let's have our Shabbos table. And then we're going to have, after we have Shabbos and lunch and whatever, Okay, so sometimes we would get into like the deeper conversations and like, okay, this is this is what a tzaddik is and the role of a tzaddik and like get into like the real depth. It wasn't just like, or you should, and you can come to you know you can come to this class and this and it wasn't like, you know, we don't want to hear anything about what you experienced, and it wasn't well. There was no stopping of if I was like, oh, I understood it to be this way, and then they'd say, oh, okay, so that's where this is a little bit. For a Jew, this is this is how a Jew would approach that. So it was more like rather than stopping the the, the lexicon of the wrong term or the wrong approach, it was it was more of like openness of saying, okay, well this is this is a Jewish approach to that, and just kind of coming at it from that perspective, and also not not assuming. I mean, I love this too. This and I'm gonna I'm going in a little bit of a few directions, so you can rein me in if you need to. The other thing I experienced a lot was assuming because I was older and because I was new to Hasidus or new to orthodoxy that I was new to these concepts, right? So I was actually like really advanced in a lot of the concepts, but again, I didn't have the full picture. So it was like advanced conceptually, but not, not in like the inner workings of it. So I would know conceptually how to deal with his bododut, but I wouldn't know what that meant from a Jewish approach. I would approach things, you know, I had tremendous faith. Like, I mean, I, I'm also like a, like a serious survivor of a lot of different stuff. There's a lot of stuff in my background, you know, coming up also with epilepsy. Like I have like a whole, you know, dealing with school bullying at a time where epilepsy was considered like a mental illness. Like I'm serious. Like there's, we could go on, like, I mean, a lot of different tracks, but um, assuming that they didn't assume that I didn't have a background. And I think that also is important. Another table, I don't know if they'd want me to say who they are, but another table that welcomed me infinitely was the first question they asked me is, do you have a Hebrew name? I said, oh, absolutely. And I told them my name and they, I said, they said, what is it? I said, Divita Gibara. And she like grabbed onto her chair and she said, and the, and the, the number one question I get asked when I tell them my Hebrew name how did you pick this name? I said, no, I didn't pick it. 
wait, this is your name from birth? Yeah, yeah. I have my naming certificate and everything. They're like, okay, wait a minute. Something happened here. So what happened here? Like, how do you get a name like that? Wait, how did what, something happen here? So then they realized that maybe it was just an interrupted pathway, right? Like there was a signal that was supposed to be happening. You know, my great grandfathers, one of them was studying to be a rabbi and then the pogroms interrupted him and he had to become a tailor. He ended up becoming a, uh, like a high fashion tailor, which is amazing. And the other one was like in Torah every Shabbos, like every day he was in Torah when he wasn't also being a tailor. Both my great grandfathers were tailors. But they're like, something happened in this, in this, this, this thing got broken. The chain got broken somehow, but it didn't actually get broken. It just got cracked, you know? So like not assuming a chain is broken is really important. I'm a Jewish woman, so I can't break. I can crack. And that's very powerful. What you said about not assuming, you know, nothing or you come from nothing. You had a background and giving that experience, validity and the space to transfer that knowledge into the Jewish approach. That's very valuable information. Yeah. I mean, I still light Shabbos on my great grandmother's candlesticks. So I'm only like a couple of generations of mix up. But what really put me on the track, and I got to tell you this, and then you can ask me a million other questions. I just don't want to lose this thought. I was going through all these Shabbos tables and going through this experience and really starting to connect, going to Shirim and really feeling like invited to people. And two things happened to me, and it's actually very timely for this time of year because one of the things happened on Sukkot. So about around the time of like Elul, I think it was around Elul, and I think I was like two and a half, three years into like starting to learn about Orthodoxy and keeping Shabbos. I wasn't keeping Shabbos yet. I was starting to like be attracted to everything and start to, you know, connect. And I had this dream and it was these one of them I recognized right away because she's my great grandmother, Fanny. Fanya was her real name, Fanya Brina. And she was in the dream and she was like a real tough cookie boy. She was no joke. This one, she was a real hardcore toughie. Bukhari, George, and Tuffy. And then there was another woman in the dream who was older than her, who was very gentle, very adel. And I realized, oh, that must be my great, my great grandfather's mother, Sima. And I actually miraculously found her surname, which is unbelievable. So she was originally Shumshan was her surname before she married my great grandfather's father. And so my, my great grandfather's mother, Sima, was the mother-in-law to this Fania, right? Who's my great-grandmother. And Fania is screaming at me in the dream. What's wrong with you? You're crazy. You're not following Shabbos. You're not keeping kosher. I'm furious at you. She was going on and on, screaming, screaming. Like she was really angry with me. And Sima said, Fania, Fania, stop, stop. Quiet. She says, Davida Kibora will be fine. She just doesn't know who she is yet. And I woke up from that dream and immediately I said, I must keep Shabbat. Like there was no, because my great, great grandmother or great, great, great grandmother, how was it? Gave me the chance to do the Shashuva and discover who I was. That was the, the linchpin. And then what really did it in, really secured it is I went that following Sukkot to one of the sukkahs I go to in Boston. And I walked out of the sukkah at two o'clock in the morning. And I said, I immediately like realized all of the generations of miracles from the dawn of like the, the Yom Suv 
like before the Yom Suf, like it's the creation of all the generations and what each one of them had to survive for me to have been sitting in that sukkah. That was it. I did want to touch upon some of the side notes you had for us, like the bullying yeah. and epilepsy. Please go into that if you are comfortable. Yeah. So I was I was born with a neurological disorder, which makes me very talkative, Francisca. You'll never have to worry about, you'll never have to worry like what I'm thinking, and you'll never have to worry about me being short on words. So it's my neurodiversity. So yeah, so I have a form of epilepsy, which also was tremendously misunderstood when I was growing up because it's petite mal seizures, which means that sometimes I'm staring, sometimes I'm repeating words, sometimes I'm fluttering my eyelids. So people thought I was being indignant. And so, and I also was telling people very much openly what I thought and felt. I was very transparent. I was goofy and awkward and stumbled over myself physically because I also, it, it also involves a lot of muscle jerks. And it also like made me extraordinarily creative, but I wasn't good at math. So they couldn't figure out why is she really great over here? And then she's really stupid over here. And like, and I would like not hear half the time because I would have so many seizures in a day, really split second ones that I would miss things in class or on the tests, like, you know, oral tests. And I would, and so, and also it made me very sensitive. And at different points, I was on different medication, which all of that made me very susceptible also. So it made me susceptible to bullying. It made me susceptible to, to adult bullying, which actually happened quite a lot. And it made me also protected me and also made me really close to Hashem. Like it's kind of like this double-edged sword to be having this neurological disorder and experiencing like so much trauma. Like there was real trauma. Like teachers were terrible to me, like would humiliate me. I had kids that beat me physically. I actually at the day, Hebrew day school, which I still have extremely fond memories of, I had these two front teeth are not real. They're made of glass, porcelain glass, because a kid pushed me on the playground and knocked them out. And, and I, when I went to the Rav, the Rosh Hashiva, he says, well, boys will be boys. I said, no. I said, boys, I was seven years old. I said, that's no. I said to the Rosh Hashiva, I think this is what got me kicked out, actually. I said to the Rosh Hashiva, I said, no. That's not what boys do. That's what jerks do. Or something like that. You know, that's what boys who have known me don't do. I don't know what I said exactly, but I said something that was like not going to stand for that. And I also don't believe that I, I actually really defend guys a lot, that guys get the bad rap a lot of the time. But in this case, this boy was naughty and he broke my teeth out. <laughs> Can you see? I said, this is not normal. But anyway, whatever. He, everyone, you know, he apologized, and, you know, later. But he did. He did this yeshuva, the kid. Like, well into adulthood, by the way. But he did it. So that made me also outside. And it also made me, like, a bit of a daydreamer. And it made me, like, it just kind of called attention. And, you know, it's funny because certain environments, maybe that's it, too. Like, they don't, they don't, they're not comfortable with things that call attention to things. I'm not subtle. I don't, I'm not someone who eases into a background and I'm a little bit odd for some people. So it really does make a difference to be aware that like, you know, and I, I grew up thinking, well, you know, and this is, this is actually, I didn't learn this through Judaism. I learned it through Judaism later, but I was like, well, King David was odd. 
Moses was odd. You have to be something really outside the lines to be Abraham. Like, so that's the kind of how I live my life. Like, I related because I was an odd duckling. And then I, I mean, I sang and everything, and I had like a lot of to offer artistically, but I was still an odd duck in many ways. But I always related like my entire life. I was like, well, you had, you had to be crazy to be, to be Moshe. I didn't even know he was called Moshe. I was Moses. But I was like, and what, and what Yosef did, like Yosef, Yosef Hatsadik blew my mind all my life and Esther, Esther Hamalka. Those two out of every one were the two that I felt the most connected to and I held on tight. David Hamelik also, but not to that degree. I really felt inspired by Yosef Hatsadik and Esther Hamalka because they were really, really, really doing something inside of the most treacherous environments and still clinging to Hashem in the most, and, and advocating for others in the most unbelievable ways. And so I felt like the advocacy piece is something that I've always been here for. And so I guess I'm advocating like in the future generations, like if someone encounters the, a child who grew up where their parents got mixed up, don't look at the baby for the bath water. The baby is the baby. <laughs> Right. And that, that neshama has, has, is not broken. It might be that the light needed to be reshifted. You know, if you have a, a light and the, the light's hitting in the wrong direction, all you need to sometimes do is turn the lamp of the lamp of the head, the head of the lamp to make the light go in the right place. And so I'm really encouraging people. I'm hoping that this story doesn't freak anybody out. But actually, like, tells people, like, sometimes the, the pentelayid, the little light inside of every Jew needs to be expanded or it needs to be redirected. But the light is the light because it's, it's the light of a Jew. Don't call us broken. Don't call it a broken chain. I don't want people to, like, get the wrong idea about where someone comes from because Sometimes it really is like, I mean, even, I mean, look at all these, I guess I'll say it this way too. Like, look at all of these people who didn't even know that their relatives were Jewish after the Holocaust. Like, look at all those babies that were like hidden or God forbid all those babies from Yemen who, who were stolen. Right. Like, I, I really think that this is a, a Golik. If we're going to say that this is the Golik time, the Golik time, this is a time to all of us to be really brave. And to listen inside the lines. Like, I'm here because I had friends who listened inside the lines, right? And listened for the subtlety. And even, even when I was doing things for Yom Tovim, and I was like doing things in certain kinds of minhagim, and they, they're not in those minhagim. And it took some smart people <laughs> to say, that sounds smarty. That sounds smarty. That sounds fun. And because that kept ringing true, I'm like, well, maybe I am. And maybe that's the missing piece. So I actually was able to uncover that truth because people listened with love and listened to the nuance. Like being Jewish is a very nuanced thing. And, and so there are a lot of people who are hidden still, a lot of conversos, 
a lot of people who come from those backgrounds. So whether or not somebody is like from a background that they would need to actually technically do a conversion or whatever, that's not even what I'm talking about, but that's a, that's a technicality, but listen to, listen to those lines and find the currents because you can, you can be a person of tremendous power for generations to come. You can save not only one life, but generations of Jews by listening with love and subtlety and rescue that light and redirect it and point it and don't call it broken, call it potential. Thank you so much, Darcy. Yeah, thank you for educating us. And thank you for being brave enough to have this conversation. I love it. Thank you so much. There's so much more. I don't see this as brave, but thank you. Now, this completes our original episode pre-October 7, and we will step into the follow-up episode that we recorded last week. Here we go. Hello and welcome to the Francisca Show for the 15th time. I love it. In the right time. <laughs> Catch us up on all the other attempts. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, it's great to be back with you. I'm so excited. I always love being with you on this show. It's a fantastic platform. And you're, you're, I just, I'm so impressed by like how diverse the coverage is on the things that you talk about. It's just really special. So the first time that we were trying to have this conversation, which is about my, my story to finding orthodoxy. And the first time we talked about it, I actually had a siren go off about what was it like 30 seconds in? two minutes in something like right yeah. away, I'm sitting with Francisca and my phone, the home front command alert system had a siren and it turned out there was some kind of an infiltration. Now there's like mixed results on whether or not it was actually a thing. Like if it was like a false alarm kind of thing, but there definitely was something happening in my Yishuv and I'm not convinced it wasn't a real thing, which we'll get into. And then the next time, I can't remember what happened. And then I don't remember what happened the next time we had. Just getting on. There were a bunch of cancellations. Like we had. Yeah, there was, there was something else, but there was some other thing when we were in the second time. And yeah, it just, it just was like a balagan. And then of course, obviously everything started in Israel right after the Yom Tovim. So anyway, here we are. I reached out to you and I said, we can't do the old episode. We have to do a new episode. Exactly. Right. Talk to me about your post-October 7th or October 7th experience and how that has changed things for you. Yeah, absolutely. So on October 7th, obviously it was Simchat Torah. My sister-in-law was with us, which was really, really special because it's hard for her to get to us. She lives like five hours away, so it's not so easy for her to come. And we were sitting there having Suda and we, my again, home front command, which if you are in Israel and don't have it installed, I suggest you do. It started making these weird noises, like word alerts. It wasn't the siren like I had the first time I was with Francisca, but it was like, and I was like, what is going on? And we didn't touch the phone because, and all of a sudden my, my sister-in-law said, you know, I, I think we're at war. Like she didn't know anything. She has had a feeling. I think there's a war. And of course, as soon as the Chag came out, you know, in Israel, it's a day earlier than in Chutz. And we opened the phone and sure enough, that was the case. And it took us a little while after Yom Tov came out to find out what happened. And we were just like completely stunned. And unfortunately, being in the music industry, and I also work at Ramon School of Music, where a number of our graduates and alumni and students 
were at that festival. So that was like extremely close to home. You know, you go, I mean, everything in Israel is close to home, right? It's like this, it's smaller than New Jersey. So if something happens anywhere, you feel it. Like literally um, where I'm sitting, if one of the Iron Dome things goes off within 40 miles of me, my house, I, I feel it, I hear it. If it's within 30 miles, I hear it really loud. And if it's within 15 miles away, my house vibrates. Like, so it's not like, you know, and, and, and I'll be in the sleeping in the middle of the night and the, the bed is vibrating. I wake up from it. It's like, you're not so far away from anything here. And obviously, you know, our neighborhood was immediately impacted because one of our neighbors, we found out, who was 19, 19 or 20 and was supposed to be released from the army within a few weeks or a couple, like within a week or something. And he, he was lost like within one day of this thing. So right on my street. So that was like, you know, you, you're not far away from anything here. When you say lost, you- he was killed. He was killed. Yeah. And I mean, and so you, you know, it's like some people I think who are coming from other places, they don't have a collective consciousness um, necessarily. That's not their attitude. But in Israel, it's really a collective consciousness. Basically, we, we feel extremely close to each other, even if we don't know each other. And I'll tell you something else freaky that happened on Simchas Torah itself. Ilana and I went for a walk, my sister-in-law, and we were walking to the park. And there was this guy in our yeshuv who did not look like he lived in the yeshuv. He didn't look like one of the foreign workers who, they're so great, they work with all of our elderly. He didn't look like one of those helpers at all. And he looked very lost and he looked very scared and nervous and like fidgety, like looking around and like, he looked at us, he started to approach us. And we both said to him, Shabbat Shalom, because it was Simchas Torah. And he didn't know what to do with it. And he walked away. And then we went to the park. We're like, oh, gee, that was weird. Like, who was he? <laughs> and then we went to the park and there was nobody in the park. Now, this is like the middle of the day. And we ended up meeting our friend. She, we you know, we went to her house to pick her up to sit with us. But we were surprised that in this beautiful park that all these kids are always in, nobody was in the park. What we didn't know is that the orders had already gone out to the Shomrim to like make sure that everybody stayed in their house. So we didn't get that memo. Why? Because your phones were off? Yeah, the phones are off. I mean, they sent the alert, but you know, who's thinking about answering it? And, you know, and I, because it could be from somewhere else far away or whatever. So we missed the message and we didn't see any Shomrim on the street telling us to go home, but we did see this, this person and we're convinced that my sister-in-law said, I think that what protected us from being attacked by that person, because we think he was not a friend, was that we said Chag Sameach and brought in holiness to the moment. So I, I choose to believe what she said. I believe her. I want to hold on to that. But it was freaky looking That's back at it, you know, crazy. like this probably was somebody who was trying to do something because we live kind of close to the line, like not too far away. Wow. So what has changed? Obviously, you know, we all kind of froze for a while. We all like, you know, everybody went to the grocery store and everything. But what I did notice, and it's a contrast to America, right? Like if, you know, you just came from a snowstorm. You're in America, there's snow coming. Like there's nothing in the shelves. There's nothing left. It's like everything is like completely, you know, wiped out. And in Israel, I noticed that nobody did that. So this war started and everyone began to think of collective resource instead of hoarding. 
So as an, as an American, it was such a nice thing to see. Like everyone was like, okay, I'm going to the store. I need milk. I'm not going to buy every milk. I'm just going to buy, and I need to get like canned goods, but I'm not going to buy the whole store. I'm making sure that everybody else comes and gets something. So like everybody was like taking a few things at a time, right? Like I stacked up too in case there was an emergency, God forbid, but I did it in pieces and everybody did it in pieces so that nobody was like left with an empty shelf. And during COVID, is that what happened also? Yeah, with COVID, it was a little bit more like people were getting more deliveries and stuff. But I I mean, and then I, I just, I'm saying that I've never, you know, we've had two pretty serious things going on in Israel and around the world since, you know, I moved here. One was obviously was COVID. And then right on the heels of that was this situation. And I, in either case, I did not see collective panic. I saw collective mm-hmm. consideration, which is such a beautiful statement, you know, and I think it kind of does, you know, there are remnants of the collective lifestyle that Israelis still feel, even though the kibbutz model has changed tremendously, but there is still a kind of of a feeling of like, okay. And like, people are like, I'm going to the store. Do you need anything? Like people are asking each other, do you need something? Or they'll say, Hey, I can't find something. And, And before they've blinked, there's like 50 people responding with an, I have it. The level of collective, you know, it reminds me actually like what we used to read about in history books in World War II, where everyone was like in the war effort and in just in my neighborhood alone and also like everywhere that I've observed, it's like seeing everyone is just like ready to chip in. Like, okay, the soldiers need, they need basic supplies because at the beginning of the war, it was so unexpected what was happening. That they didn't have, like, they had, like, obviously their equipment, like, a lot of equipment. They still needed some, but and a, a quite a bit, actually. But they didn't have basics, like toothbrushes, underwear, soap, like, things like that, that normally a military is able to certainly supply. But they didn't have any near the level of supply that they needed. And with almost immediately, everyone was at the store getting hordes of socks and underwear. You know, and if you're buying it, you can, that's the one thing that you could hoard because everyone knew where it was going. So if you came to the register with like 85 pairs of boxer shorts, like nobody looked at anybody sideways because they all knew it wasn't going to that house. It was going to a base somewhere. It's been something that you don't expect to see such a serious situation. And the other surprising thing as an American was now I was I you know, obviously I'm old enough that I went through a lot of things I lived through the 80s and like the whole like nuclear threats and the Reagan era and that whole thing but then also like 9-11 and everything else and one of the things here that was shocking even in Boston when the Boston Marathon bombing happened if anybody remembers that I was working at Berkeley and that event happened like right down the street from where I work And the entire city was shut down until they caught the guy. And then I couldn't go back to work for a week and a half because the whole area was like a forensic investigation area. So that was like one kid with one kumkum, like basically a a Shabbos urn that he turned into a pressure cooker or something that he turned into a bomb. And, you know, at the Boston Marathon that, I mean, obviously a lot of people got hurt and it was very scary, but like that, it shut Boston down and parts of other surrounding towns here this happens and everyone's like 
okay, and everyone's at their desk at 9 o'clock in the morning at work, keeping the country going. So Israel doesn't have the luxury of shutting down. Like America can like go into hiding. You know, I don't know how it is in Europe. I've never been to Europe, but like other places can just like shut down shop and go into hiding and that's the end of it. But in Israel, it's like if we all shut shop, nobody succeeds. And that just continues to feed them their what they want us to do is like hide and be scared. And Israel is like, well, this is really horrendous, but I have to be at my desk and be present and be and be as normal as possible. So that was actually really, really interesting. And I, I was it was an adjustment, I have to admit. But I I said, how do I manage this? So I said, OK, I take breaks whenever I need them. If I need to take a half an hour to process what's happening here, I'll take it without asking permission. And I think that's kind of how everybody's managing it. But Israel does not have the luxury of stopping or slowing down. We don't even have the processing time, which is unusual. I like how you illustrated as somebody who experienced irregular times in the States versus Israel, because we're including stuff like COVID, not just terror. Talk to me about some of the personal stories that you know of loss and that you can share in memory of the people who lost their lives, lost people in their lives. Yeah, so I can say that at Ramon School of Music, they definitely lost some alumni. And one of the students, he actually was from Bieri and lost his whole family. And immediately, now this is a student that I met like one time, you know, just in passing. He survived? He survived. He wasn't home. And he immediately turned into the music and like recorded this incredible song with some soldiers that went, that were on like Miluim that are Ramon students with musicians. He just turned everything into action, like into this incredible faith-driven action. The neighbors that we lost. Can you share names also? So I actually don't have them. Unfortunately, I would have to send them after the fact. But it's just like one example of just like how Israelis do things. Our neighbors, you know, there was losses in a couple of losses in Ayushov. And also there were a couple of losses in nearby areas. And Ayushov went to their funerals and rallied around these families. So it's hard to isolate because every single one of these people who has been lost, either in, in battle or because of the actual events. Oh, yeah, I can say this story. We went to a Brit Milah for our very, very close friends, who is the father is like kind of like a rub for my husband, like they're very close to us. And they already lost a son two years ago, unrelated. And we went to the Brit Milah of the first grandson in the family, Ruch Hashem, and they all were passing out a card for a bracha, and they told us to take the segula because the second son decided not to go to the Nova Festival and stay home with the family instead for Simchat Torah. And that's like, that's probably the closest to home that we felt because this is like family that's so close to us that we consider them very close. Like, I think we would say like they're cousins to us, you know, and he stayed home. So it's just like a matter of minutes. Like, it's almost like, you know, the same thing, like, if someone doesn't get on a plane somewhere, like it's just the hashgacha pratid. And, and the hard thing, though, on the other hand, 
is to say, okay, that was Haskaka Pratit for that person. But when someone, all of these beautiful tzadikim, these kids, like you have to know that for them to be taken that way, they must be tzadikim. But that's not a comfort. That doesn't, that doesn't do the job. You know, it's like we have to trust Hashem, but that doesn't comfort the loss. And uh, I think it's incredibly brave. Not only, like, and even for people who didn't die or even weren't injured, but like the effect, the impact, the vulnerability that a community can feel that this could even happen. And then getting into what we'll probably get into soon, what none of us saw coming. None of us could have seen. Now we're being blamed. And all of a sudden, things that are not okay anywhere, they're okay that they happen to us. That, that's the part that the speed in which, I mean, I'll kind of pivot into this and you can, we can, if, you, if I'm going in the wrong direction, let me know, but. That's perfect. During Colomoid, I went to the mall. This is going to sound really funny. So I, I'm from Boston. Well, from Connecticut, but in Boston. And I'm a Harvard family person, meaning my, my relatives all went to Harvard. And I went into one of the stores at the mall, like during Colomoid Sukkot. And I saw all this like Harvard insignia, like sweatshirts and, sh- and sweatpants and t-shirts and stuff. And it wasn't just Harvard. It was other schools too, but. I looked at the Harvard stuff. I was all excited. I felt like, oh, it's fall. And I said, because I used to get a very warm feeling going to the Harvard bookstore and buying my sweatshirt every year. Like it was a thing for me. And I was all excited. And I told David, okay, those look like too high quality. Like that doesn't look like knockoff. I'm, I need to see that. And I went, I was so surprised. I was like, oh my gosh, it's like really high quality Harvard sweatshirts. Like what? And I looked at the tag and they were, they were in fact real. Harvard insignia apparel from the Harvard Coop. I could not believe it. I was so excited. I said, oh, I'm coming back after Yuntif and getting this. No, I'm not. Because after Yuntif and after this whole thing started, eruptions of betrayal happened across college campuses of the highest echelon that I could not believe. And, and I'm sitting there. I work in higher ed. Luckily, the school that I'm, that I'm working with affiliated through the work I do is, is very, very supportive, extremely supportive. I mean, I also looked at it and said, well, I probably don't have a career in higher education in America anymore because I'm a Jew. And even if I did have a career, I may not be very safe. I mean, Berkeley is a different exception because the answer is that would be safe. But if I weren't to go anywhere else, I would have to have a second thought. Like when I saw like the kids in the library locked up in the library to keep them from being beaten by very uninformed young people, but they were highly uninformed young people that then the idea was not to educate the young people into correct information. The response was to lock the Jews away into a library. Like this does not make sense to me. So in addition to the trauma of the actual events from October 7th, and I don't want to isolate it to October 7th because don't forget that they have been sending missiles every single day and rockets and, and we just had a, a, a horrible incident uh, in Renana the other day. Like it's not isolated to October 7th. It's just like that was the, the and that was the, the breach of the ceasefire. And then 
Obviously, inside of this thing, they called for ceasefires, which were also breached. That's like the, the repeating trauma is that. But then the repeating trauma is also what we're all looking at in the rest of the world. Like, and, and it's like, how in such a fast time? You know, and social media is part of the problem. And there's a lot of good that's coming on social media, too. People are combating it, but it's just, how did we get here? And then they even tried to change Christmas. Y'all were saying that Jesus was a Palestinian. I'm like, what? So because they were so want to hate Jews. Oh, first they, you know, first, obviously, they say, you know, I don't I can't. The whole, like, blood libel about, about Yashka and from, from certain factions is crazy. And but they even tried to change, you know, at least they would say that at least he was from Israel. Now they're trying to say he was a Palestinian when there was no such thing as Palestine. Like, what are you talking about? And and so the whole narrative thing is like that that amplifies the trauma to exponential levels. You know, it's like and you certainly don't expect that kind of betrayal. I mean, I lost a lot of friends. I'm like, well, okay, I see you. Yeah. Goodbye. Okay. And, uh, you know, some people I told them goodbye and some people I just cut them out of my life, you know, because there's no talking to them. But that's very painful. You know, to have some kind of a, com- a camaraderie with someone and then all of a sudden find out. So my best friend actually is not Jewish. And but she grew up with me in West Hartford. And so we have a, a thing between us. She's actually happens to be African-American and Irish. And we have a thing between us. It's we're going to make a T-shirt. Would you hide me? Because African-Americans experienced slavery and needed to be hid on the Underground Railroad and Jews needed to be hid during the Holocaust. So we want to make a thing that says, would you hide me? And, you know, but the fact is that it's she's she's only one of many African-American friends of mine that had the same idea. And or they would say, girl, I'm, I'll hide you from these crazy. So I'm like, so as much as the trauma has been certainly experienced. I'm sure that all of us are also experiencing a lot of layers of support as well. So it's kind of this like duality that's really tough to manage. Thank you so much, Darcy. Thank you. After recording this episode, Darcy sent me the information on the song. The lead singer, Daniel Weiss, a student at Brimon School of Music, in honor of his parents who were killed from Beiri. His father was killed there and his mother was kidnapped by Hamas and then killed in captivity. Thank you so much for listening. Please keep reaching out with your suggestions, with your feedback. I appreciate hearing from you and see you next time.